Welcome to the Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast by the makers of the Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Adam, we uh, we did something kind of weird for this episode. We read some comics. Yeah, something that I haven't personally done with any regularity for a long time. When I first got my iPad, back when iPads I, were pretty new, maybe 2014, I thought, oh, like maybe this will be the thing that makes it easy for me to read comics, because I've always been a read-before-I-go-to-bed person. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was buying it with the idea that I travel a lot for work and I would like to take a a book with me to read before I go to bed. And the, like, e-reader functionality of the iPad was the the thing that I got it for. But I I guess whatever was going on with presenting comics on screen at that time was pretty weak sauce. And it seems to have come a long way. Uh, I really liked this Comixology app that we used to read this. Yeah, outside of a few hiccups I had in just the purchase of a comic and its (laughs) download using that app. Yeah, thanks for making me tech support at like 8 o'clock this morning, by the way. (laughs) Uh, I love how you got on the line and you were like, uh, thank you for calling Comixology Tech Support. My name is Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) Your problem is very important to me. Yeah. No, uh, you were you were no help at all, Ben. I I figured it out on my own. I was yeah, kind of like how I figured it out on my own, and didn't bother you with it. I here's the thing. I I think a while ago when Amazon bought Comixology, there was a big uproar about you know Amazon ruining potentially a good thing. Right. There is a thing that exists on both the Prime Video app and the Comixology app that is like just one extra step it's not as easy as just clicking and purchasing and downloading there's a little bit of a thing that happens maybe apple has restricted like i think that the i think that their deal with people that put apps in their stores that if you have in-app purchases apple gets to keep a piece right which is why like the amazon prime video app like you can buy like digital copies of movies on amazon but You can't buy them within the app. You actually have to go in the browser onto Amazon.com. Yeah, and that is the analog that's happening here with Comixology. Fascinating stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So do you go way back with uh, with comic books, like as a a kid-sized and aged person? Were you uh, you a comics kid? Did you have a did you have a comic book shop that had a little shelf for you with uh, with poll titles? I had a. I went to Doctor Comics and Mister Games in Oakland, California, when I was a kid for my comic book. God, needs. that is a great name for a comic yeah. shop. Jesus, good stuff. Mine was called and- Puss and Books, <laughs> <laughs> which was a bookstore with a bunch of cats running around in it. Oh man, how did you convince your parents to let you go in there? <laughs> I. I mean, I was and am allergic to cats, so uh, it was not enough of a deterrent. Um, I was never a, I never followed any like main line comics. I never followed a Marvel or a DC comic. 
and I think that the main reason why was that the books were always very short and I didn't really understand the the like collection thing and yeah. I didn't ever feel like I could pick up a story at the beginning and it just all it felt very impenetrable to me so the comics that I did like were kind of one-off you know comic books by sort of alt and indie comics artists and then you were uh, a comics hipster even way back then yeah I think I I think it was more just that like I felt like if I went to the indie comics section I, I could pick up a book off the shelf and like I could absorb the entire work within the front and back cover of that book whereas I didn't have a reliable way of convincing my parents to take me down there you mm-hmm. know on a weekly basis to to like follow a story and I didn't have like a big brother to tell me how to do that right. so I think I became aware that like people arranged to have comic stores set aside every issue of a comic for them like a couple years ago like I had no idea that that was a thing and it makes total sense but like my parents didn't know shit about that and were only moderately supportive of my interest in like learning about comics so yeah I it it, all that said like I've read like you know Akira and (laughs) Ghost in the Shell like those are probably the like the biggest name comic books that I've read and uh, a bunch of weird, like, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac comics and stuff like that. But never, I, I, I have not followed, like, this This feels to me like a, a real comic in a way that I, which is not to say that those others aren't real comics, but it's it's not the kind of comic book I grew up reading. That is so interesting to me that your interests were self-motivated, due in part to just your independent study of it. Uh, I had a very different experience from my perspective. I had friends who were very into comics and friends with older brothers specifically who had very strong comic interests. And so uh, by hanging around with them and playing role-playing games with them, uh, like I, in order to trade the currency of friendship at that age, like you have to have like interests. And so uh, I became interested in reading Marvel comics and then later image comics in order to like remain (laughs) friends. Really? (laughs) Like uh, you want to know about this stuff. And there was something about the collecting that really scratched that persnickety itch that I've had all my life, which is like the possession of the thing and keeping the thing nice while it's in my care. Like the thing about buying a comic book, reading the comic book, bagging the comic book, and storing the comic book. Like, that is, <laughs> that's a very satisfying process to me for ways I can't quite articulate, you know? It's like yeah. people who have nice record collections or, or have nice baseball card collections or whatever you collect, there's that interest in keeping it nice and safe. And it also was a way to have a relationship with an adult business person that I think might be my first like when you go into a store and you talk to a shopkeeper you sort of make an arrangement like hey i'm going to come back every month and what's on and what's being offered here is a part of a shelf with my name on it that the shopkeeper will pick comics and and my part of the deal that i need to hold up is i need to visit every month and and buy these things keep my uh my allowance squared up for these uh yeah in many ways it's like the first contract i think i ever had with anyone 
Wow. And it felt it felt like adult, like a thing to go <laughs> in and do. And that's that was a fun process for me. You're a very precocious young man, Adam. <laughs> Not sure about that. But, uh, <laughs> well, do you want to get into these comic books that we read? Yeah, I think so. What we're reading today, or what we're reviewing today, are the first two Star Trek Discovery comics uh, with the title Succession. And what makes these comics unique and important is that uh, they may or may not be canon. And the reason that they may be canon is something that Ted Sullivan, one of the writers of Star Trek Discovery, has said about them. When asked, he said, uh, I look at it this way, it's canon unless we do something that invalidates it on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of like a, a great position to take. So uh, having none of this invalidated at this point in time, this being uh, mid-season one and two, let's dig into the canonical implications of Star Trek Discovery succession number one. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 This first one opens on like MU, Lorca, and Burnham plotting before the events of uh, of the Discovery traveling to the Mirror Universe. Like it's it's like a year ahead of the destruction of the Charon. Right. It's kind of like the a, a lover's plot, right? Like they're both uh, nude, like slinking around the bedroom, and. Uh, Maybe like a post-coital plot that they're discussing. <laughs> Some of the best plots. I guess she gets undressed though, so maybe it's a pre-coital. Maybe they're maybe they're gonna bang while enjoying, like while reveling in their evil genius. You know, pre-coital <laughs> discharge can still get you pregnant, Ben. Yeah, you got to be careful with that stuff. <laughs> That's why the rhythm method doesn't always work. Right. Discovering each other through the discovery of ourselves, honestly. Uh, it's fun to see them in an intimate scene. You know, this is something that was only alluded to on the show. Right. And, and alluded to in a way that made it filthy and, and bad because of their relationship. But Gross to contemplate. Yeah, but to see them together and how much they enjoy each other's company, uh, it's a totally different way to consider their relationship. This also kind of renewed my curiosity about Prime Lorca, a character that we never met. Right. You know, I think uh, all implications are that Prime Lorca is dead, but you know, you can never uh, you can never count on that in in a TV land. Nope, sure can't. As long as a as a person's under contract. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it makes me excited that there's a potential Jason Isaacs cameo in season two, right? Boy, I hope so. He's just the greatest. There's a really fun uh, smash cut. Like I'm gonna, I feel like I'm gonna use a lot of TV and film terminology here with regard <laughs> to transitions and compositions and stuff. Mostly because uh, I think that's that's a fairly accurate shorthand to use when we're talking about a visual medium. The last words in this scene are "Nothing will ever come between us," and then smash cut to the destruction of the Charon. And uh, this is uh, the ISS Shenzo pulling up to the to the Charon and. That's pretty fun stuff. Like, they are kind of still under the dubious uh, impression that Michael Burnham left Lieutenant Detmer in, in charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lieutenant Detmer, of course, is the lady who in the Prime Universe got her face blown apart in uh, the Battle of the Binary Stars, but is a, a uh, an unblowed up 
character in the mirror universe. What you get in this scene is more dialogue than Detmer and Awasakun have had uh, in the entire season. It's true. Uh, like, it is a little bit of a one-note power struggle. Like, I guess they were both of the same rank, and Awasakun kind of resents that Detmer is, has assumed the command of the, of the ship in the meantime. And uh, we kind of come back to that a couple of times, but uh, but they're out here looking for survivors of the destruction of the flagship of the fleet. That description of it being one note is really interesting to me because I think what it does is describe how much harder a comic has to work to make the case for its characters and its motivations right. than a TV show does. A TV show has the benefit of a musical score and expressions and the way that it can edit a scene to either raise or lower tension between people. So, I mean, the comic really relies heavily on the dialogue here yeah, because it doesn't have any other tools. I like the way it's paced too. Like there's a, there were definitely a couple of scenes where I was sitting there reading it, wondering like, what, why am I even reading about this? Like, why do I care about what these characters are doing right here right now and or who are these people (laughs) (laughs) but it always uh it always kind of revealed itself by the end of the scene and i don't even know if you call it a scene in comics i'm sure that there are comic people listening to this episode just tearing their hair out at how at how badly we're using the terminology yeah yeah i can relate it's fun to see a fascist san francisco right And the introduction of a brand new character, we get Prince Alexander, the surviving cousin of Emperor Georgiou. Prince Alexander watched watched the film Blade and really just dug the haircut a lot. So uh, that's the kind of haircut he's rocking. Boy, I don't think we can talk too much about what Prince Alexander looks like, right? (laughs) Because, like, all his ideas are scary and threatening, but he's so weird and nebbish looking. Yeah, he's, um, I kind of wonder like who you would cast in this part. Cause I mean, there's characters in this that are based on characters in the show. And so they're drawn to look like the actors who portrayed them. Yeah. And then this guy we never see in the show. I think those caricatures and, are really good by the way. Yeah. And, and he definitely like has, has a look and, his look is Duran Duran to me. <laughs> like like super glossy. He's he looks a little androgynous for someone who has taken the stand of of a form of purity that flexes like it would be masculine. You know what I'm saying? Right. And uh he is surrounded by all these like noble noblemen and they've all got the like hard chest pieces yeah. that uh, everybody wears there's definitely like i think that the nobility get like red elements maybe mm. mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to think about like how like how society is structured and how government is structured in the terran empire but the this dude has has kind of taken the throne in the absence of anybody else that would be considered to be in the line of succession He's Michael Burnham's cousin and is, you know, like Lorca was trying to take out Emperor Georgiou because he thought she was not hardline enough. This guy might be even more hardline than Lorca because he is 
bent on a genocide, basically. Yeah, he's not into the subjugation of these other races of people, but uh, in their extermination, rather. He's like an ethnic cleansing dude. Right. Back on Kronos, uh, we see Laurel, who is alive and still working with the Resistance. And uh, Did so- we ever meet Mirror Universe Laurel? I don't think we have. I don't think we have at all. She's she's grieving Voke's death on Harlack, though. Right. Which you might remember as, as Harlack was bombarded in orbit by the Charon. Mm-hmm. Along with Laurel is Amanda Grayson, the now widowed wife of Sarek. And they're like sitting around the campfire plotting how do we take advantage of this kind of gap in, in consistent Terran policy. You know, there's a... There's a succession taking place, which means there will be some, like, inconsistent leadership and an untested new emperor. They don't even realize, like, how, how bad the new guy is. They're just trying to take advantage of the the relative chaos, I guess, to uh, to press their advantage. And Right. They're used to uh, predictable leadership, competent leadership, and then uh, when you in- install this crazy person right after right. that... I think uh, the rest of society can see that as a as something to take advantage of, especially when the new guy is a real idiot, <laughs> a really like emotionally impulsive idiot that is not really in possession of all of his faculties, and a racist, an ethnic cleansing type. Right. It's sort of setting this up as like two two sides of of, of a big conflict, but I think that even even before this, like you've seen. Uh, one of the noblemen on the Shenzhou getting killed by Detmer. And uh, it shows that, like, the inherent chaos in the Empire, just, like, because of their kind of, like, kill-or-be-killed lifestyle, <laughs> I feel like it's already pretty obvious that the, the chaos that the rebels are looking to exploit is not going to be the chaos that they think it is. Right, because the baseline level of chaos in the Terran Empire is so high right. that I feel like this only minimally moves the needle. Uh, one fun character we get to meet also is Mirror Universe Commander Bob. Right. She is, uh, she is not uh, quite as decorated in the Mirror Universe, but Bob is back, baby. Yeah, and she's kind of the power behind the power, right? She works for Prince Alexander... And, like, to his face, shows allegiance, but really hates him and his methods and is, like, pretty keen on undermining him when she gets the chance. She uses a lot of the same kind of language with him that Michael Burnham and Lorca used with each other in that first scene. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, when when she's not in his presence, is actively working to undermine him. And uh, he's doing that kind of that villain monologuing thing where he's showing her his giant holographic DNA strand. And uh, my favorite quote from the comic book is, Purity, thy name is human. Hey, it looks like you're trying to exterminate a race of aliens. (laughs) We'll take these weapons and load them into your atmosphere. In one Sol period, your planet will be ready to take over. Talk about a heavy period. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. DNA with a menstruation joke. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mirror Universe Mr. DNA. Really off color with the yeah. humor, yeah. A little bit problematic, yeah. <laughs> we have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? Klingons? There's that balcony scene with Commander Bob and some other guy, uh-huh. like talking about the madness of of wiping out all non-human species in the galaxy. Yeah. Did you think of this guy as potentially being a character that we need to keep track of, or is he just there for her to explain that she's not, uh, as previously stated, on uh, Emperor Alexander's side? Well, I mean, his presence appears to be serving the utility of being someone that Cornwall can talk to. But the way comics work is that, like, you could go into Cornwall's head and have, like, squared-off box dialogue that's just her thoughts. You don't need that to serve the exposition of the story. Yeah. So having said all that, I think I will err on the side of this being a character we need to know. Yeah. Back on the Shenzo, uh, we have we have an Aram sighting. Yeah, and I was, I've never been entirely clear on what she is. Yeah, and boy, do we get some backstory here. Yeah, th- like, we we know that she is at least part human, uh, based on the fact that she is involved with the uh, Empire. Like, uh, she's, she's human enough that they don't consider her chattel or whatever, and she's got enough control to pump killer gas into the bridge and and kill everybody yeah they depict her in profile in the first couple of frames and it's a series of frames that show her putting on her mask it kind of uh transformers out of her face yeah her computer head she might be the most rugged of all the bridge crew that we've come to know this mirror universe version of her is a badass no kidding so what is she is she like uh the million dollar man or whatever where she's transhuman that kind of augmented or something or you don't really get the full backstory but what you get is her resentful feelings about the unrevealed backstory she mentions that like this is a crew full of people who have othered her in that way and now by taking command of the ship and gassing the bridge crew uh, she's getting her comeuppance it's it does not seem like she can gas her way into acceptance though like her endgame is not going to have anything to do with carrying the water for the Terran Empire going forward, I don't think. I like that she has a different font when she talks. Me too. everybody else. Yeah, that's fun. Um, and then uh, we get a scene, just a little brief scene on the surface of Risa, which in the Mirror Universe is a total hellhole <laughs> and looks like a, uh, <laughs> it looks like a, a slum in some very hot and very impoverished place instead of being like verdant and and wet it's yeah. uh it's it's so dry it's not a fuck planet anymore no one there seeks jamaharon nary a horgon to be seen no but what there is to be seen is uh harry mud and he's uh he's kind of a humanitarian in this universe he's uh bandaging up an andorian who got her uh, antenna damaged or cut off or something and um who does he meet but a cloaked michael burnham she's there to uh work out some kind of deal that's the big reveal that's the button on the comic bin it's a short little episode yeah 
What do you think that is about five minutes of showtime if they had shot this for disco? Yeah, because all of the scenes are only a couple of pages each. I wonder, do like, do you know in in comic world how long a series is going to be? I saw that there's an announced third book to this series, but we only got uh, books one and two, or issues one and two. I don't know how it works, but uh, based on what we're seeing here in the first comic, it, it seems like they are beginning a, a story that could last a long time. Yeah. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Top of the morning to ya. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality. And this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. 
Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda in this comic? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. I did. It's a, It's going to be a visual Shimoda, obviously. Okay. A time code Shimoda? Yeah. As it you, were? If you turn to page two, and that's the second page after the comic actually starts, uh, there's, the, there's the top frame of of Michael Burnham from behind sharing the frame with uh, with Lorca. And then the frames below that, there's a <laughs> cut-in frame of Lorca. And then next to that frame is a totally different frame with Michael Burnham from behind again. Yeah. And it looks, the way that the frames are positioned, it suggests, like, <laughs> the sexual position that it suggests kind of flies in the face of the comics code here. Like, are you uh-huh. seeing what I'm seeing? Like... If they were to occupy the same frame, it looks like some banging. But they're just talking to each other in a shot, reverse shot kind of way. <laughs> I feel like that's very intentional frame-to-frame composition there. I think you're picking up what they're putting down. Yeah. Yeah, what about you, Ben? Uh, I had to give it to Detmer and Owosakun. They get a kind of co-Shimoda for being so caught up in their own little extremely trivial power struggle that they don't see... Arium coming you got to keep your head on a swivel in this in this lifestyle and the fact that they're just kind of like lightly bickering about who should really be in charge the entire time is uh like obviously they're not cut out for that captain's chair if they can't uh if they can't predict gas being pumped into the bridge yeah i agree i think you need to see that one coming if you've got a robot person on your bridge I think you need to assume that the air can be taken out of the room at any point. Indeed. Should we move on to Succession Book 2? Issue 2? Yeah. What? 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 What's happening? What? No! What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? This comic starts uh, with a flashback scene of a young Michael Burnham sword training with Giorgio. And yeah. uh, they don't practice with plastic weapons, Ben. No. It's a very brutal approach to to practice, you know, like at some point, Giorgio lets Michael Burnham practice with her palace guards. And she says, like, if you can kill them, they don't deserve to be my guards. And if they can kill you, you don't deserve to be my daughter. <laughs> That's some fucked up shit. Yeah, it's pretty rough. We also get a little bit of young Alexander. And uh, boy, uh, for all of Michael Burnham's morrissey fan haircut in this scene (laughs) i think uh young alexander's big dubstep fan right uh so they've they've really fallen on opposite sides of the musical issue (laughs) they're also uh on opposite sides of the genealogy issue because one of the ways that prince alexander young prince alexander uh bullies her is uh rubbing his lineage in her face he's jealous of the attention that she gets and the one way that he can get one up on her is is by saying, you know, you're just adopted. You're never going to inherit the throne the way I will. Yeah. I liked seeing this set against the backdrop of the San Francisco landmark, the Palace of Fine Arts. Yeah. <laughs> I guess in this, in this universe, it's the Palace of Martial Arts. <laughs> That's great, Ben. 
That's why I get the big bucks, Adam. Score one for you. <laughs> um, back in the uh, timeline of the present for these books, uh, we got Burnham and Mud hanging around on Kronos, walking through the slummy environment, having a chat. Burnham is there to, uh, you know, call do some favors that uh, she feels like Mud owes her. There's uh, references to exchanges that they've made in the past, but Mud is sort of encouraging her to not pursue the throne. He's like, everyone thinks you're dead. I even thought you were dead up until a little little while ago. Like, that's the ultimate freedom, right? Why don't you get out of here? But Michael Burnham isn't into this. She's got her eyes on the throne, and uh, she needs his help to get it. She promises Mud that, like, once she's able to attain that status, it will be better for him in the long run. It's kind of interesting to make this version of Michael Burnham a protagonist, right? Because she, as far as we know, roughly believes in the fairly brutal and awful dogma of the the Empire, right? She's just less awful than her cousin, who is a pretender to the throne. Yeah, it's it's uh, in the mirror universe, evil is really a matter of degree, isn't it? You know how they say some people were born to be bad? How do you feel about this person being our protagonist, you know? Like, Mud, I could see being the protagonist more than better by shades, evil Michael Burnham. I think Mud himself in this comic says something to that degree. He's like, or is it Laurel? It's, I mean, Michael Burnham is characterized in this comic to that degree in that you know like you work for the Terran Empire you've done some terrible shit to our people why should we help you right and so that that question seems uh, very related to the one that you're asking me and I'm not sure I have an answer for you no I don't I don't know that the comic does yet I would hope that that's something that they find a way to resolve if Burnham attains the throne and then presents an evil plan that is only two clicks less awful than the one that uh, Prince Alexander has, then what's the point? It's not going to be genocide. It's just going to be slavery, guys. Yeah. (laughs) That's not even close to genocide. (laughs) You all get to live. (laughs) Uh, So back on Earth in the Alexander throne room, Commander Bob is uh, doing a little presentation on the genocide scheme that is well underway it is uh the the ships are being loaded with this with this toxin right yeah things came together pretty quickly and uh she shows a a hologram of what i'm pretty sure is the stargazer which is an interesting little tie-in to the tng mirror universe comics yeah it kind of looks like the same class doesn't it if not the exact same ship alexander is super pumped about this He's he's a really classic mustache twirling villain, isn't he? Right. Yeah. No shades of gray with Alexander. (laughs) No, not at all. And Cornwall presents this news update with all the commitment of just a person doing it for the paycheck, you know? Right. She a bit betrays her lack of entire devotion to Alexander here, but... Yeah, she's not enthusiastic about this plan. She's thinking, like, why don't we uh, we do some, some tests on some Alderaan-scale planets before we ramp <laughs> it up to our uh, 
you know, your big, uh, your big Karelian <laughs> scale planets. <laughs> I get uh, those references. He's not into that. He wants to do the whole, the whole shebang all at once. There's a really nice crosscut here between this scene and the Shenzo, where uh, Captain Arium has taken delivery of this payload. They're at one of those space stations. I think we saw one of these, like, with uh, with Klingon tags all over it on the yeah. show. And she's uh, she's taking the payload and then taking out the station, which uh, has the effect of destroying all of the ships at dock as well. Pretty uh, pretty rugged move. Pretty uh, pretty low blow. She really uh, shoots him in the back, you know. Yeah, and the uh, the bridge crew that she has assembled of of her new believers to them, she promises to enrich herself and them if they obey her. Who is going to pay them if everybody's dead? I know. <laughs> I know. That part's weird. She uh, she has a little monologue about how pissed she is about being deemed impure. Yeah, she's got an axe to grind. And uh, this appears to be the start of a vengeance mission for her, which is fun. It's fun. It also makes her a really interesting chaos agent in yeah. the story because we're building this very existential scale fight between the Rebellion and the Empire that involves two pretty knowable sides and then she's in here cruising around in a very capable ship with a very unknowable agenda yeah that part is very fun we have engaged the Klingons back on Kronos uh, the people have started to notice that uh, that the Terrans are leaving in kind of large numbers, and that's <laughs> creeping them out. They're like, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was looking at a house recently. It's like there's no demand for these things. You can make an offer at the posted selling price, and they will accept it. So Ben, I was out back getting uh, getting tortured for a while, and then the guy <laughs> torturing me just kind of took off. So after about two hours, I left, and here I am. <laughs> You think that's weird? <laughs> Wonder what happened to that guy. <laughs> anyway, uh, can you rub this ointment on me? <laughs> you know, it's like when you're at a bar and uh, they change shifts and you feel bad because you didn't get to tip the server <laughs> from before. I just didn't know how to feel about it. I still have like two fingernails left that haven't been pulled out of my hands. <laughs> I mean, I, I expected him to finish the job. It's a little out of character. So Laurel is looking to do some uh, some governor killing. They're heading to their uh, their campfire to to meet up and talk about it. When uh, she walks in and finds Michael Burnham there, and she's like getting ready to do uh, do like mech left to the neck on Michael Burnham. You know, Sarek's wife has to kind of like talk her down off of the murder cliff. They sit down with Michael Burnham and, and hear her out and. Uh, she winds up seeming a lot more reasonable than your average evil mirror universe character. She's like, hey, listen, like, I know that that emperor was was bad, but, like, what you don't understand is that she was a fairly moderate imperial. It's another scene that underscores that the restraint that Michael Burnham has emotionally is what makes her so dangerous in this universe. The I think the rebels have talked about the idea that the Empire might be looking to do a multiple species xenocide, uh, but it's been kind of cast aside as an implausible idea because 
the Empire loves subjugating people. Yeah. And uh, Michael Burnham is here to tell them, like, no, in fact, that is what they're doing. And, like, if you guys will help me, I will help you. And I'll help you first. I'll help you uh, take out the Imperial Governor of Kronos by sneaking you into the uh, into the castle. It's such a hollow promise, though. And this is this is the second such scene in these last two comics that make me feel this way. Like, what does the newly discovered living Michael Burnham have to promise anyone? Like, it doesn't make her goal of getting the throne any more or less effective if no one knows she's alive, but that's what she's promising. I also don't really understand, like, what specifically she does for them in this palace raid scene. Like, she is on the raid with them but it doesn't they don't show her doing anything that anybody else couldn't do to get them in there it seems like an arrangement based purely on reputation than than anything else and it doesn't even work you know they get into the palace and are attempting to kill the the governor but you know he's he's prepared a beam out ahead of time so it's not effective and uh and the last shot of the comic is of the ISS Constellation, I guess, uh, poised to drop this dispersal drone to uh, to kill all non-human life on the planet. Yeah, they're going to have to get the hell out at the beginning of issue three, I think. Or keep their fingers crossed that the uh, reports of the testing on this weapon bearing out having been cooked or something like that. Or maybe the chaos agent that is the Shenzhou uh, will arrive on the scene and uh, give them some, some cover. Who knows? Who knows? Ben, did you like these two comics? Uh, I did. And it's hard for me to read these without comparing them to show. Yeah. I think of this as being just like a, you know, like a five minute episode of the TV show yeah. in a way. Yeah. And I feel like it's good but not great um but i do really like taking the boggle game of these characters and shaking them up and looking at what the mirror universe versions of everybody is up to it provides kind of an interesting lens through which to view them and i like these characters and i've been curious about some of the deck you know the bridge characters and so yeah for for those reasons i i did really enjoy this experiment how about you I like these two issues specifically, but generally, a comic format grants a ton of latitude because with a comic book, you don't have a budgetary restraint. So when uh, when Aram destroys that starbase, like, yeah. like you can destroy set pieces in a comic in a way that you can't do on TV. And right. so uh, the comic book sandbox allows you a, a scale to your storytelling that is really without limits and it's something that uh that excites me going forward especially if these are seen as as canonical stories to the greater star trek discovery universe i think you could do some crazy unexpected things here i'm a little sad that the charon is already explode in this uh timeline because that's one ship that I very keenly felt the budget didn't really allow them to show much of. Yeah. In the show, like I would love to see. I mean, it's a huge ship. What's what's going on in there? Yeah. It's just a bunch of junk in space in this story. 
Yeah, interesting time to be in the mirror universe. Uh, but did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible drunk Shimoda. Uh, yeah, I think the uh, the governor of Kronos probably would be my Shimoda. Yeah, because he's kind of he does that thing like I thought you'd never arrive. Like yeah, just you're too waiting. Late. <laughs> like you know, he knows he's he's gonna get beamed out. But what? What assurance does he have that he can get beamed out quick enough not to get phasered? I don't know. And it doesn't. It's not like he's he's just there to taunt them. Like, why did you stick around to do that? Who cares? Yeah, he he's portrayed as a little more omnipotent than than yeah. a typical governor of Kronos should be depicted. His plan is engineered for maximum drama and not maximum logic. Was this guy the same dude who was like a an aide to Giorgio in that first scene just years later? Oh, shit. I didn't he's put like that a, together. A, a bald man. He's got same hairline, but he's grown a goatee, maybe? I don't know if it's the same guy. I did not put that together. Hmm. Remains to be seen, because uh, we'll be seeing more of him, certainly. I mean, there's no there's no hint of, like, recognition between Burnham and him in this scene, so... Right. But maybe, like, was there, like, something about that's why she was able to get them in? Yeah. We'll find out in <laughs> issue three. Uh, how about you? Did you have a drunk Shimoda? Yeah, it was another visual for me. On page seven, it looks like the, the kids playing soccer are kicking a little BB-8 around. I saw that too. I wondered if that was a uh, an intentional dunk on that's got to be on Star it, right? Wars. It's yeah. got to be. I don't. I don't think you draw something that looks that much like BB-8 and not not have a message you're trying to send in so doing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, just kicking BB-8 around like a piece of junk. Well, that was uh, that was a fun little experiment. I, there's, I think there's an entire completed story arc of comics that's already out like this is another not knowing much about comics thing is like i can't figure out what is what when i look online at what is available well maybe this will be the start for us of getting back into comics yeah if if uh if anybody out there has read other star trek discovery comics and wants to suggest something to us i'd be very curious to hear those suggestions my people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. What? To sense the coming of death. This doesn't make any sense. I sense it coming now. None of it makes any sense. Sounds like nonsense to me. Well, Adam, one other thing I wanted to talk about briefly before we go today is uh, I was on the internet and discovered an article where they showed the original loaf design on Saru. They even put uh, Doug Jones in this in this loaf and like did did some screen tests, and it's pretty wild shit. It's kind of a uh, it's kind of like an upside down delta with maybe like eight or ten creepy goat eyes on it. Yeah, to me, it kind of looked like a Gibson flying V guitar. <laughs> uh, I really like seeing it, and it's fun to imagine. I mean. The thing about Saru is that he's a character that we wind up needing to relate to on a kind of human level. Yeah. And I wonder if that would have been a harder bridge to cross if he looked this non-human. 
Right. You know, that's a great point. Like you make it harder to root for someone if there's less of yourself to see in them. And there's like essential humanity poking through Doug Jones's portrayal of Saru as currently envisioned. And I think that is a thing that helps a a viewer identify with him and like him on that level. Though, I mean, who knows? Maybe they would be able to get around that having seen an entire season of flying V-face Saru. But yeah, the photos also show him in a earlier iteration of the uniforms from the show, which is also pretty fun to see. It's kind of a lot of the a lot of the shape elements are there, but the the color is really different and also the uh I don't know if it's actually Jug Jones or another actor, but the uh, person wearing this loaf is just wearing some like New Balance jogging sneakers. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty fun, fun to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, Adam, uh, I think uh, I think we can call it there. Not much more disco news this week to discuss, um, but uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. We are now a fortnightly podcast. That's what that means. <laughs> so every other Tuesday we'll be back here uh, talking to you about the newest and best in off-season Star Trek Discovery news and dabbling in some comic books when we can and, yeah. uh, and interviewing uh, some super fun guests about the show both uh, what we've already seen and what we hope to see going forward We'll leave it with Rob from here so thanks for listening The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison, and it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our music is by Adam Ragusia. So head on over to MaximumFun.org to support the ongoing production of our show, or you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. We'll see you next time. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.